0: Well, today we begin a series on 1 Timothy, which is a letter that specifically is about establishing the right kind of leadership and the right order within the corporate gathering of the church. I should make a remark that this was the series that we were supposed to begin right around the end of March, which was when the world exploded with COVID-19. And so, how do, how do we uh, end up doing a series on establishing order in the corporate gathering of the church when we just shut down the corporate gathering of the church? And so, this has been tabled for a while, but uh, to come back here and, and to uh, reestablish outdoor uh, service, it gives us the opportunity to then um, visit this topic. And we're going to do that today simply by taking an introductory look. It is really just an introduction today. Uh, and uh, we're going to examine the dynamic between the author and the audience of this particular book, this letter. It's, it's a letter. As much as we call it a book, it, it's, it's really just a letter. So look with me at, at uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. This is what it says. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of, our God, of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace... Mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, this is a standard opening of a letter uh, for the the time and culture. The way we write letters, we start off with, Dear audience, and then we end it with, Sincerely, author. Right? That's the way that we would do it. But uh, that's not how they did it back then. They would start with the first line as, you know, This is the author, it's from me. And then the second line would be the audience. This is the audience to you. That's what, uh, what it would do. So when the Bible was being written, it was a very normal way to write letters in this format. Uh, the, the letters in the Bible did not establish a new genre of literature. This is how they did it back in that day. So uh, this is a, a standard letter, but what makes it unlike the other letters written by the Apostle Paul is uh, that most of his letters he's writing to a church. The church in Rome, Romans. The church in Corinth, Corinthians. Right? The church in Galatia, Galatians, etc. Uh, and yet this letter is a personal letter from Paul to Timothy. And we're eavesdropping on what the apostle says to this young man. And the task is, whenever whenever we do something like this, is, um, you know, we have to ask ourselves, what does this have to do with us? Right? We could learn and learn and learn, but Scripture is God-breathed to equip every person for good work, right? So it's um, it's not just that we get familiar with this letter and uh, and look at it once and then just memorize the information. It's not that, but it's to learn something from it for how it applies to us today. Which is odd because this is this is a personal letter from Paul to Timothy. It's not to us, and yet if you were just to to read through it a single time, I'm sure if you've ever done that, you'll discover that there's a lot that we can glean as a church, based on what the Apostle Paul tells to Timothy. So our author then is the Apostle Paul. I feel like I could go on for a while on this guy, uh, but we, we hear a lot about him. Um, he did, after all, author approximately half of the New Testament books um, among those books, he's written Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. These are all well known books. And, uh, and most people, when, when you're asked uh, what's your favorite verse in the Bible, it usually comes from something that the Apostle Paul has written. Well, the book of 1 Timothy is a letter from the Apostle Paul to a man named Timothy. Uh, Timothy was a disciple of the Apostle Paul. And, uh, and, and in, this, in this scenario, the reason why this letter is being written, uh, he's, Timothy has been left to do some, some work in the church at Ephesus. And the situation at Ephesus was pretty dire, which is why Paul is writing this letter. There was a lot that needed to be dealt with, a lot of correction that needed to happen for false teachers, bad leaders, disorderly conduct from members, etc. And so I want to give you a bird's eye view on those three things that I just mentioned. I want to talk to you about Paul... Then I want to talk to you about Timothy, and then I want to give you kind of an overview of this letter, why Paul writes this letter to Timothy. So those are our, our three movements, if you're taking notes. Uh, let's start with uh, the Apostle Paul. Uh, we'll go over some basics about the Apostle Paul, since I don't want to assume that everyone here is familiar with him. You might not be. Um, Paul is an apostle, and by apostle, uh, we, mean, we mean that he was a, a very specially designated uh, agent for the Lord, uh, he was personally trained by Jesus. All the apostles had to be, so Jesus had twelve apostles, uh, and then and then one of them betrayed him, and so he got replaced by another guy named Matthias in Acts chapter one. So he still retained twelve for the twelve over the twelve tribes of Israel, and then this one apostle, this this other guy, the apostle Paul, he kind of gets recruited, and he becomes the apostle to the Gentiles. See, the twelve were over the house of Israel. And then this one guy, Paul, he, you know, he gets the short end of the stick. He has to go and reach all the rest of the nations of the world. He's an apostle, which means that, uh, that he had a, a special designation that, uh, that is not shared by anyone else. There are no apostles like, like Jesus' 12 apostles or like the apostle Paul. There are no apostles like that today. Uh, the apostles and their very close associates were uh, given power by the Holy Spirit to perform signs, wonders, and miraculous deeds, which gave credibility to the gospel, uh, and, uh, and that, that, was, that was specifically as a foundation for the church, says Ephesians 2.20. Uh, specifically to set the foundation of the church, and that is not the normative uh, rank within the congregations today. There are not apostles today that are the same thing as, uh, as the 12 that Jesus trained or as the apostle Paul. Now... Paul was a Jew. He was Jewish. His, his Jewish name is Saul, uh, and then he eventually goes to his Gentile name, Paul. He was very like a Jewish man. He was trained as a Jew, and if you just read Philippians 3, you'll get it. I'll, I'll display the uh, Philippians 3 up here on verse 5. Um, he was circumcised on the eighth day, which is appropriate for the people of Israel. That's to say he has a very traditional, orthodox uh, kind of beginning. Um, from his life. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews, which means that he is not only biologically a descendant of the the people of Israel, but he's religiously very Jewish exemplary in his piety. As to the law, he says that he's a Pharisee, which means that he's an avid legalist. He's the most educated and disciplined uh, tier of society that uh, compared to the rest of of Israel. Um, As to zeal, he was a persecutor of the church. Which means that he loved Judaism so much that he was fine imprisoning and murdering Christians because he perceived them as a threat to the Jewish customs. You you find out uh, an example of that in Acts chapter seven and eight, where uh, where there's a stoning of a man named Stephen, and and Saul is there, Paul is there. Uh, and he's overseeing the whole thing. As to righteousness under the law, he was blameless, which means he didn't skip out on any of the ceremonies or sacrifices or cleansing or rituals, etc. And he was the the rising star of Israel as a Jew. He was an aspiring leader, and he was climbing the ladder very, very quickly until one day in Acts chapter 9, Jesus spoke to him from heaven and said, Paul, knock it off. Saul knock it off and, uh, and, and stop resisting me. I'm the Messiah, so get in line. And then Saul says, you're right, Lord. It is you. And that's where he, he's converted in, in Acts chapter 9. So uh, here's this guy named Saul who also has the name Paul. He's from Tarsus. That's why he has a Gentile name. He, he came from a, a, a Roman province and a, a, a city that was Roman. And so he's a Roman citizen. And so he was bicultural, if you can relate to that, um, I'm a Korean American and so I have a Korean name but I'm, you know, I'm in the United States of America and so I function with my American name or at least the name that is easier to pronounce to people in America. Try going through your life with Korean people calling you Rindu and they can't, can't even pronounce it. Uh, I had to switch to my my Gentile name in that sense, right? Saul, uh, Saul kind of had this issue going on. He was, uh, he was from Tarsus. He had two names. He had Saul and Paul, and he switches to Paul only after he decides that he's going to go on missions to, uh, to help out the Gentiles. You know, he's trying to to do ministry and he's going to Jews first and then after he speaks to Jews, then he'll go to the Gentiles. And uh, as he goes back and forth like that, eventually at some point in Acts chapter 13, he decides I'm just going to, I'm the apostle to the Gentiles and so I'm just going to use my Gentile name. So you never hear his name Saul after that. He just goes with the name Paul and uh, you can see that full transformation into his position. He used to be a Pharisee for Judaism and now he's an apostle for the gospel. Now, if you thought he was a good Jew, which he was, when you find out what kind of Christian he ended up being, uh, he becomes even more remarkable of a man. If you just, uh, we'll display 2 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 22, and he uh well, I'll just, I'll go ahead and I'll, I'll read it to you. It says, uh, are these other people Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are the offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman. I, I have far greater labors, far more imprisonments with countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews, the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? Just looking at, uh, at that that little rap sheet that he has. As a Christian, you know, if, if you ever uh, presented a resume to say, this is what I went through for the Lord. This is what, uh, what I had to endure because of my faith in Jesus. Very few of us, if any at all, would have a record that compares to this man. You look at his background, you can see he was something special. We might, uh, we might then assume when you picture him, if you would just go ahead and in your mind imagine what did the Apostle Paul look like? And uh, I don't know about you, but uh, I just think he looks like someone who's at least physically adequate, right? Physically formidable in some way. I don't know. He doesn't have to be like, he doesn't, he doesn't have to be all, you know, like buff and, and muscular and stuff. Not like that, but... Uh, you know he was he was a high ranking guy he, he was he was top of his game, he was extremely educated um, and he had wild perseverance, unmatched endurance in our minds, he's a spiritual giant, he's a hero, and so I'm guessing we don't imagine someone that would be too out of shape or look too unkempt, right We don't think of someone who's like uh who's unusually short or even unusually tall. We don't think of someone who's unusually fat or unusually skinny. I think we, we don't even imagine him to be unusually dark or unusually light, pale. We just think he, he must look like a, like, a, like a dude. You know, maybe you, you try to date it back 2,000 years, so maybe you, you think he's a little shorter, and then he's kind of like an older guy, so maybe he's hunched over, maybe balding. But we don't really see someone who, who seems weak, and yet, what's uh, interesting to me is that um, the name Paul means small. Well, it, it can mean a lot. It really just means not that much. And so you can interpret that in a lot of directions. It, it, it can mean scarce or rare. It can mean small. It could mean weak. And then you can even say it means humble. But I don't think that that's the name that was given him if he was uh, trying to become a Pharisee. He was given his Gentile name during his Gentile upbringing. Why was he called Paul? Why was he called not that much? Maybe because he was not that much. If you look in uh, 2 Corinthians 10, verse 1, he seems to admit this about himself. He says, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. He's saying, when I'm, when I'm there, I'm, when I'm in your presence, you can see I'm humble. I'm humble. And the, the word there for, for humble in the Greek is uh, tapenos, which is uh, I'm, I'm lowly. I'm servile. I'm, I'm small. It is not a dignifying word. He says, in person, face to face, I'm not that dominating of a presence. I'm not this, uh, this spiritual giant that everyone thinks of. You know, you, you see him in person and you just go like, oh, that's it? I don't know if you've ever met a celebrity before, but, uh, you know, when you've got a celebrity that you really look up to and you meet this person face to face, you think, oh, that's it? He's just a human being. And that's what the, the apostle Paul was saying. Like there's a mildness to him that he was aware of. He knew that he was not that much. That he was lowly, servile, small. That's something to know because when we think of Paul, we think of a hero of the faith. And so I think that when he walks into a room and has this commanding p- power about him, that if he were to speak, everyone would turn and listen. And yet he says, when I'm with you, you know, I'm, I'm not that much. And then when, I, when I'm far away and I'm writing to you, it, you know, you think I'm so, I'm so bold. And I want to draw attention to this because Paul is mighty for Jesus despite his particular deficit in charisma or presence. In person, you can see he's not that much. And and God was not joking around. Paul wasn't joking around when he said that God uses the weak to shame the strong. Right? He uses the, the small to shame the big. Because that's something that uh, that Paul relates to. He knows that he was not that much by himself. And yet God uses him. And I think it's important because this is how Paul can relate to Timothy. Because Timothy was also not that much. He was a meek man. Now, I want you to think about this. Uh, The Apostle Paul is constantly surrounding himself with, uh, with fellow believers. He gets involved in a lot of ministry work. He establishes churches, and he does, you know, he, he does a lot of preaching and stuff. And so he gathers up throughout his time plenty of different companions that, uh, that go and, and do work with him, right? Just check out uh, the slide I'll put up here. In Acts chapter 15, he works with Barnabas, Judas Barsabbas, John Mark, In Acts chapter 17, uh, there's uh, Dionysius and uh, Darmeris in Athens. In uh, Acts chapter 18 and 19, Paul meets a gifted speaker named Apollos. There's also a married couple named Priscilla and Aquila and another guy named Erastus. In Acts chapter 20, he deals with uh, Sopater and Tychicus and Trophimus and Gaius and Aristarchus and Secundus. This is all helping me with my role-playing game, thinking of names. In Acts chapter 21... Uh, he's, a, uh, he's accompanied by this guy named Philip, who's the same guy that's uh, mentioned in Acts chapter 6 for being full of the Spirit. We also see a, another guy named Manasin. Romans 16, there's Andronicus and Junius, and then a, a big list of other people that Paul works with in that chapter. In 1 Corinthians 16, there's Stephanus. In Philippians 4, there's Clement. In Colossians 4, there's Epaphras. 2 Timothy 4, there's Eubulus, Putins, uh, Linus. In T- in Titus 3, there's Artemis. And then, of course, there's Luke, who happens to write the gospel according to Luke and the book of Acts. He was a frequent companion of Paul. All of these are people whom Paul worked with and labored with in the gospel. These are people with whom he suffered. But of all these people, there are two that stick out more than the rest. Two that I didn't mention yet, but there are two that, uh, that Paul talks about very affectionately as his spiritual children. Namely, these are Timothy and Titus. And while Titus is somewhat of a bold and assertive character, Timothy is a smaller personality. Timothy is not that much. And yet Paul carries this unmatched positive regard for Timothy that you might not notice unless you look for it. And so let's look. Let's talk about Timothy, and, uh, and that's, that's a hard one to unpack, so I'm going to try to just do it chronologically. I want to take you kind of through some history stuff that, that went on. Um, we're going to start with the Apostle Paul's first missionary journey, which is chronicled in Acts chapter 13 through 16, um, and the Apostle Paul will be on this first missionary journey. He goes to lots of different places. One of the places that he goes to is Lystra, L-Y-S-T-R-A, Lystra. So look at this in Acts chapter 14, verse 6. They fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycaonia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. So uh, that's what you got. Paul gets to this area of Lystra and Derbe, and he's he's, uh, uh, preaching the gospel. And then you kind of get this big section in verses eight through eighteen, where Paul heals a paralyzed guy, and people start worshiping Paul and Barnabas, who's with him, um, you know, calling him Zeus, and it just, it's all out of fear of, of certain myths and, and, and uh, things that they were afraid of. But verse nineteen, it says that uh, verse uh, in verse nineteen, it says Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, which were not that far away, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. And I want you to absorb that for a second, okay? They threw rocks at him, right? When you stone someone, it's, it, they're not small, handheld rocks. These are big rocks, you know. This, this, at times, these would be two-handed thrown weapons, right? These are, these are large, heavy rocks. They threw it at him, uh, and they, th- they hit him enough times and severely enough that they think they killed him. How many times do you have to throw rocks at someone until you think this person is dead? right? You've seen someone get hit in the head by by a rock or something. You go, oh, that must have hurt. And the person falls down. You walk over there. Are you okay? But imagine a crowd of people just throwing these rocks until this guy's bleeding. Uh, You know, his, his, his body's breaking. And then you just keep throwing rocks until you think he's dead. You have to absorb the severity of that. And if you get that, then Paul—that means Paul preached the gospel, and the reaction of the people was to kill him, or at least they thought they killed him. They thought they succeeded. They're like, let's let's throw rocks at him until he's dead. And then at some point they're like, aha, mission accomplished, he's dead. And then uh, they, you know, they thought they succeeded. And so because they thought they succeeded, that's why they stopped. They didn't stop because they ran out of rocks. They didn't stop because they got tired. They didn't stop because Paul just wouldn't run out of hit points. They just kept going. They thought he was dead. They thought, we did it. We succeeded. Now our problem has ended. And then they leave. Verse 20. But when the disciples gathered about Paul, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derby. Right? The the, the Christian brothers just kind of gather around. They're like, Paul, are you okay? And he's kind of dead. And so they're probably praying for him. And I, I think that this is a moment where God healed him. Whether he was dead or not, uh, that's I don't know, who knows? But I think I think God heals him because uh, when you have stones thrown at you until you seem dead, things are broken, things are out of place. You're not you're not able to just get up and walk back into the city. You know I think I think God healed him, um, and so Paul gets up after you know after all, he only gets up after all the Christians gather and pray. Right? They, they they gather around him, so he gets up, he walks, and he decides, okay, well, I, I don't think they believe. So let's go and try the, the the town down the street. Let's go to Derby. And uh, he, he seems rather chipper after that moment of being killed, almost. Well, verse twenty-one: when they had preached the gospel to that city, which is Derby, and when they had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. Remember, that's, Lystra was where it happened. And it's the people that came from, from I, uh, Iconium and Antioch. That's, they're the ones that, that stoned him and stuff. Uh, verse 22, They were strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Now this is psychotic. And I love this about Paul because, uh, you know, he, he's in Lystra. He preaches the gospel. They, they stone him to death, they think. And he gets up, he dusts himself off, and he's like, well, all right, let's just go to Derby. He goes to Derby, and then, like, a bunch of people come to faith, and he's like, "Oh, I'm on a roll. Let's go back to Lystra. And, uh, you know, with... With the, him wanting to go back to Lystra, everyone's thinking he's nuts because they'll attack again. You know, like, do you remember what happened in Lystra? He's like, yeah, I remember. But look what's happening here, and that can happen over there. And they're like, Paul, are you crazy? Because they'll attack you again. He says, well, through many tribulations, we enter the kingdom of God. That's, I mean, that's a tough answer, you know? They're going to they're gonna try to kill you again. Yeah, well, through many tribulations, we enter the kingdom of God. His answer is, yeah, that's true, but pain is part of the process of serving Jesus. Like, that's how, how courageously and how, how insanely he just goes, let's go back. You know that place where they tried to kill me? Let's try again, right? I don't, I don't know what uh, would have gone through with him there, you know, because remember that they stoned him until they thought he was dead. He And that's got to be crazy. Like, if he comes back into the city, like, you know, it did not look like he... They didn't think he survived, and so they probably just think he respawned. And he just showed up, and he's like, hey, I've got the gospel. Let me tell you about Jesus. Well, he he, uh, goes back to the town of Lystra, he preaches the gospel, and had almost been murdered, but then... Goes back a second time, and then he makes many disciples. He establishes churches there, and in Antioch, and Iconium, he uh, establishes churches that are healthy enough and sizable enough that he's able to establish elders or overseers uh, at each of these churches. And when they're all good, when they're all established, and when they're all stable and stuff, it's time for him to, to move on. Now, the reason why I bring, you to, the, uh, uh, bring to your attention the, his ministry in Lystra is because during this time while he's preaching at Lystra, two people come to salvation and they're not yet mentioned. But they do come to salvation uh, during his time at Lystra. And these two people, one of them is a grandmother named Lois. And then her daughter is Eunice. So there's a grandma, Lois. And then there's mom, Eunice. And, uh, and Eunice's kid is Timothy, right? So Lois is Timothy's grandma. Eunice is Timothy's mom. Well, here's what it says in 2 Timothy 3.15. It says, from childhood, Timothy, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And what he's saying is, you know, uh, you have been raised up Since you were a kid, you've been raised up knowing the Scriptures. You've been taught the Old Testament. You've been taught the Jewish faith. Which means Lois and Eunice have been devout Jewish women, and they raised Timothy as a faithful Jewish boy. And you can tell that they were uh, serious about their faith. After all, Eunice names her kid Timothy, which means he who honors God. Timothy is the Timotheo. He who honors God, theos, theo. But since Lo- uh, Lois and Eunice, they, they came to, to salvation, they came to Christian faith uh, while Paul was preaching in Lystra, well, they got to they tell their kid, right? Lois has, to, uh, Lois has to tell her grandkid. Eunice has to tell her uh, her her son, right? So that's, that's what's going to happen. They, they evangelize Timothy, uh, and Timothy comes to faith. It kind of says that in 2 Timothy 1 verse 5. It says, I'm remi- uh, Paul says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, Timothy, a faith that, f- that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. So chronologically, the Apostle Paul went on his first missionary journey. He preached at Lystra. Lois and Eunice got saved, and they reached out to Timothy. Timothy got saved. Well, we, we finally get to meet Timothy during Paul's second missionary journey, which is chronicled in Acts chapters 16 through 18 about. And it's, uh, it's been three to six years since Paul was, has been to Lystra, since he got uh, he, he got almost killed and stuff. It's been like three to six years. Acts chapter 16, verse 1. It says, Paul also came to Derby and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. That would be Eunice. But his father was a Greek. His father was pagan and was a Gentile. Verse 2. He was well spoken of, Timothy was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. So... Here in Acts chapter 16, we discover that Timothy was the offspring of a a mixed marriage, right? He had a a Greek pagan father and a Jewish Christian mother, Eunice. And it seems like Timothy's father is not really in the picture since uh, Timothy gets a a Jewish name and he doesn't mind. uh, And no one seems to oppose Timothy becoming circumcised, which is a sign of Jewish identity. Um, And no one seems to mind that Timothy's going to go on a Christian mission, so it seems like Timothy's father's out of the picture, which is why his grandma Lois and his mom Eunice uh, are mentioned and they're, uh, you know, and they're commended for their faith. And they seem to have raised Timothy as a Jew and then as a Christian, even though he was only half Jewish. And it turns out that Timothy was well spoken of by the Christians at Lystra and at Iconium. He had a good reputation in the church, something about him. Everyone says, like, he's a solid guy. He has real faith. This is a guy who genuinely loves and trusts Jesus Christ. So Paul meets him and wants to take him on missions, which will include ministering not only to Gentiles, but also to Jews. And, you know, which one is Timothy? Are you Jewish or are you Greek? You know, which one are you? And so uh, Paul decides he's going to have Timothy circumcised as a sign of Jewish identity so that when they go and minister to Jews, the Jews won't be like, hey, you know, we're not going to listen to this uncircumcised Gentile. Instead, they'll see the sign of Jewish faith. I don't know if they check, but I don't know. I, let's not talk. Okay. Uh, Paul, never, uh, Paul never met Timothy before that. Like he came on that second missionary journey, met Timothy, and then uh, realized everyone had such a good uh, regard for him. And so he says, all right, let's go. You know, he, he stays there for a while, he gets to know him, and he says, like, you're the real deal, and I know your mom, and I know your grandma, and, uh, and they're solid, and so you, you must be solid, so let's go. And I want you to think about this. Paul wants to take Timothy with him, right? But Timothy wasn't kidnapped, and he wasn't forced. Timothy agreed to go with Paul on mission. Now, I told you Paul's kind of psychotic, right? He's just like, he's, he's a glutton for punishment. They could try to kill him, and then he'll be like, all right, round two, let's go. And here's Timothy, who was in Lystra, lived in Lystra. His mom, his grandma were there. They all were there. Paul was there only three to six years ago. Timothy was, was still like, you know, he, he wasn't a baby then. He was, he was still a thinking person. And he would see what happened to the Apostle Paul. He would see this guy get massacred and then get up and walk away and then come back and do it again. And he would know that that's what it's going to take. That's what it means to go on mission. He's, he knows that's what, that's what the risk is. And Paul's like, I want you to come with me. And Timothy's like, yeah. Yeah, I can do that. Yes, I want to go. It's hard to get people to come to church if there's a sickness going around. What would Timothy do? I mean, I feel like he would just be like, yeah, I'm going to go. I feel like Paul would be like, yeah, I'm going to go. He knows that it's a potentially life-threatening endeavor. It could end up with imprisonment, persecution, and even death. And Timothy's like, I'm in. I'm in, Paul, I'm in. Why? Because he knows that following Jesus isn't about comfort and happiness. It's not always about, you know, staying safe and staying proper. It's, he knows pain is part of the process. And he is joyful to go through whatever it takes to get the gospel out there. So this is probably the moment where Paul and the elders in Lystra lay hands on Timothy and commission him to accompany Paul to preach the gospel. There are a couple of moments uh, where that's mentioned. 1 Timothy 4.14, it says, Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. When did that happen? Probably here in, in Acts chapter 16, when he's commissioned to go with Paul. 2 Timothy 1.6 says, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. When did Paul lay hands on him? Acts chapter 16, when he was commissioned to go on missions. So Paul takes Timothy with him for the rest of his second missionary journey, and they go to a lot of different places. They go to Philippi, and they go to Thessalonica, and that's why Paul mentions Timothy in his letter to the Philippians chapter 2, and he also mentions Timothy in his uh, letter to the Thessalonians, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. I believe it is. Uh, then they went to preach in, in a place called Berea in, uh, in Acts chapter 17. And uh, the Bereans were of, of noble character. They, they were awesome. Um, but as, that, uh, as faith was growing there, that upset some Jews. And so, you know, opposition came. And when opposition came, it was targeted at Paul. So Paul's like, all right, I should go so that the church can, it seems like it can continue on without me. I'm going to go, and he moves on to Athens, but Timothy and another guy named Silas, or Sylvanus they, uh, they stay there for, for a little while um, in, in Berea. They stay for a little bit, and, and Paul just continues journeying on in Athens and, and kind of bounces between Athens and Corinth. Eventually, he says, okay, come and meet me. And so they, they meet him over at Corinth uh, where Jews attacked them, and, uh, and so they, you know, they're like, oh, yeah, forget it. We're just going to preach only to the Gentiles from now on in that area. So they only preached to the Gentiles, and they stayed there for one and a half years. That's part of the second missionary journey. They stayed there for one and a half years in Corinth. So you get that Timothy did a lot of traveling and a lot of ministering on a long-term basis with Paul during the second missionary journey and then paul decides to go on a third missionary journey in acts chapters about 19 to 21 and timothy's like all right i'm in and despite all the suffering and hardship and how much time it took and the toll and the fact that he doesn't have time to settle down and find a wife or buy a house or get a car or anything like that he doesn't have any any time to do that. he's just traveling they're kind of homeless, and they're, they're establishing churches. They're getting beaten up and, you know, and uh, whipped and thrashed and imprisoned, all that kind of stuff. That goes on and on, and Paul's like, let's do it again. And Timothy's like, yeah, I'm in. I'm, I'm all in. Let's go. And the destination becomes important here. On the third missionary journey, Paul's first stop is a city called Ephesus, where they minister for three years. Timothy is helping with that. Timothy is there for all of that. And then, uh, you know, they, uh, uh, they, they, they minister there in, in, in Ephesus for a while, and then they move on to, to Corinth and then to the whole region of Macedonia. Timothy is there. He's, he's going on to Corinth. He goes all, all throughout Macedonia. He does all of that, you know, runs the circuit again. And then Paul eventually goes to Jerusalem Timothy goes with them there. Paul gets arrested. He gets taken to Rome and stuff. Timothy goes with them there. Timothy is there step by step. He's there for all of that. And then sometime after the third missionary journey it's, and, and all the imprisonment and stuff, Paul kind of goes on a fourth missionary journey. And that's not even recorded in the book of Acts. The book of Acts kind of ends there. but uh, uh, But a fourth missionary journey. Paul at least begins that, it seems. And Timothy goes, I'm in, I'm there, let's go. And they return to Ephesus, and when they get to Ephesus, the church is a mess. Like the church that they had established, where they, where they ministered for three years, it's falling apart. Like they still meet together and stuff, and they're all friends and everything, but the church is not healthy. Their faith is not healthy. It's not biblical. It's not godly. It's a mess. There were false teachers, corrupt leaders, insubordinate members, disorderly conduct, etc. And so, what Paul has to do when he gets there is he has to excommunicate these two guys, Hymenaeus and Alexander, which is talked about in First Timothy chapter one. We'll get to that next week. But he has to excommunicate these two guys, and then he has to depart. He's like, I got more to do. I got other stuff to do. But this church needs a leader. We can't just continue on. So Timothy, you stay here. You take over. You're not going to be my associate anymore. You're going to be here, and you're going to be the lead pastor in Ephesus. And you're going to fix this. And Timothy says, yeah, I'm down. I'm in. I'll do it. And so Timothy stays. He's established in a long-term solo position. He's not helper Timothy anymore. He's not associate Timothy. He becomes pastor Timothy. And he leads the church in Ephesus, and there's plenty for him to do. He's going to need help. After all, when you, when you uh, just gather what Paul is saying to Timothy, you start to piece together little tidbits of information about him. You find out in chapter 4 of this letter that he's young. He's younger than than a lot of the people that he's going to have to confront and correct. He's young. You find out in chapter 5 that he has frequent ailments and pains in his stomach. He seems timid, which is why Paul tells Corinth to be very easy and comforting with him be gentle with him and comfort him he says that in first corinthians 16 10 and he deals with anxiety he's anxious which is why paul has to remind him that we're given a spirit of power not a spirit of fear that's what he says in second timothy chapter 4 verse 7 paul loves timothy Timothy was not that much. Paul was not that much. And I think they relate to each other in this way. Maybe Paul sees in Timothy the potential for God to use him that that God saw in Paul. And maybe Timothy sees in Paul a look into the future. That if God can use someone who's not that much like Paul... Maybe God can use someone who's not that much, like me. Paul loves Timothy, absolutely adores him. Timothy was Paul's protege. Paul trusted Timothy arguably more than anyone else. Philippians 2.19 that Paul uses. He says, he's like my own son, and I am like his father. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 16. Paul says to the church in Corinth, he says, I urge you then, be imitators of me. That's why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in the church. Paul wants Corinth To imitate himself, he says, Corinth, I want you to imitate me. That's why I sent you Timothy. You want to know how to be like me? Well, I sent you Timothy. Be like him, he'll show you how to be like me. Timothy is exactly like Paul, he's he's the spitting image spiritually. And you can't tell, but Timothy joined Paul maybe in, uh, uh, in his mid-teens. He's been assisting Paul in ministry for almost 20 years. Now, when you're, when you're partnering with someone in ministry for just a few years, you start to become similar. People feel it. You know, they go, oh, the, you know, that pastor kind of has the people that are kind of like him. That's what happens. There's a resemblance that grows because you establish a, you synchronize a rhythm. A pattern. And that's what happened with Paul and Timothy, such that when Timothy was around, people felt like Paul was around. No one is mentioned as often and is with Paul as constantly as is Timothy. Timothy was Paul's emissary between churches, Timothy was Paul's replacement when Paul had to be absent. Timothy helped Paul take money to the poor in Jerusalem. Timothy kept Paul company several times and Paul was in prison. Timothy was with Paul when Paul wrote Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, and Philemon. Timothy was Paul's shadow, Paul's apprentice, Paul's right hand, Paul's intended successor. And even when Paul knew that he was going to die soon, when he said, my life is coming to an end, when the Apostle Paul knew that he was soon going to die and he had a chance to write one final letter, he writes that letter to Timothy. We call that letter 2 Timothy. So if anyone is going to get the, the church in Ephesus, if anyone's going to get the Ephesian church back on track during Paul's absence, it has to be Timothy. Because this church is a mess. Very quickly, then let me just speed you through the various reasons why Paul writes this letter. Let me just give you an overview, right? Paul writes this letter. Technically, Paul uh, tells us exactly why he writes this letter. Look at First Timothy chapter three, verse fourteen. If you go right into the middle of this letter, here's what it says: I come. I, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave. In the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. He's like, I'm writing this so you know how everyone's supposed to behave in the church. You should know how church should be, how everyone should be acting. More specifically, here's an abridged list of uh, of what you're going to deal with in this letter. In chapter 1, verses 3 through 20, you have uh, have Paul confronting the false teaching of speculative doctrine. He's telling Timothy to confront false teaching of speculative doctrine. Chapter 2, he has uh, Timothy to call believers to live obediently to the gospel. In chapter 3, Paul lays out instructions for Timothy to establish leaders, and he gives the qualifications of leaders and servants, deacons. In chapter 3, verses 14 to 16, you also get this purpose statement, which we just looked at. In chapter 4, you have another confrontation of false teaching against ritualism, ceremonialism, sacramentalism, that kind of stuff. In chapter 5, you have instructions that Timothy needs to to carry out on how to honor certain types of people in the church, like widows and older people, etc., etc. In chapter 6, verses 3 through 16, you have another confrontation of false teaching against people who are, who are using godliness as a means of gain, godliness for financial gain or maybe just for prestige or whatever, ministers who are in it for themselves, not for Jesus. And then in uh, chapter 6, verse 17, Timothy is supposed to give instructions on how wealth should be used specifically by people who have a lot of it. And then you have closing statements in verses 20 and 21. Think about what we're dealing with here. False doctrine, ungodly behavior, proper leadership, sound theology, holy living, church discipline, church reform, leader discipline, legalism, works righteousness, ritualism, speculative doctrinalism, money corruption, false motives, confusion of gender roles. It's all in there. And Timothy has to deal with that. He has to sort that out because this church was exploding in every corner. And he has to bring everything back to Jesus. He has to bring everything back and say, look, it attaches back to Jesus. And when you look at Jesus, you have the model for how things are supposed to be run. You have to bring everything back to Jesus, not bring, back to, not, not bring things back to just a, a sophisticated system of theology or law, not bring things back to rituals and ceremonies, not bring things back to money or prestige. you got to bring it back to Jesus. That's what the church has to be planted on. That your church should not be sitting there talking about social justice as its ultimate aim. It should not be talking about theology as its ultimate aim. It should not be talking about any of that kind of stuff. Not even moralism. Not even just good behavior as its ultimate aim. Its ultimate aim needs to be Jesus. To set our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith and to run the race to win. Heavenward. Toward Jesus. And it's a good thing... That the Apostle Paul trusts no one more than Timothy because of all the people that Paul ministered to and of all the people that Paul ministered with, he knows that Timothy is the most like himself. Timothy was saved because of Paul's ministry to his mom and grandma. And Timothy was raised by Paul's tutelage, trained in the faith, trained in ministry. He was commissioned by Paul's appointing and even established in pastoring in preaching, in leading. And so we get to the very, very beginning of this letter. And you just have these two sentences, one that establishes the author and one that establishes the audience. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and Christ Jesus our hope, To Timothy, my true child in the faith. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. You know what I love about this opening? Every opening to the letter, if if you just read any of Paul's letters, you just kind of push through these first two verses because you know who the author is, you know who the audience is. But if you just... If you just pay attention, Paul does something here in the way he phrases things. Look at his inclusive language. Paul doesn't say, by the command of God, the Savior, and of Christ Jesus, the hope. Paul doesn't say, grace, mercy, and peace from Christ Jesus, the Lord. He says, Timothy, by the command of God, our Savior... And of Christ Jesus, our hope, grace, mercy, peace from Christ Jesus, our Lord. Paul knows Timothy has the same faith, same hope, same Savior, same Lord. He says, Timothy, I'm writing to you with the authority of an apostle from God the Savior of you and me. And Jesus, the hope for you and me. It wasn't just that they both had small personalities. It wasn't just that they were very similar in the sense that God was going to use them for much despite the fact that they were not that much. It was that they had in common the same love, namely Jesus the same willingness to live and to suffer and to die for Jesus that when it came to going into ministry and facing suffering, imprisonment discomfort hunger and thirst pain ridicule hatred maybe even death they said we're all in let's go from Paul to Timothy because of our Lord. If ever someone were to think that Paul had a child that grew up to be just like him, it would be Timothy. And we're going to journey through this letter in the the next few weeks, and we're going to watch how Paul instructs Timothy to get this church back on track. Despite Timothy's youth despite Timothy's ailments, despite Timothy's timidity and shyness, despite Timothy's anxiety and fear, despite Timothy's smallness, that he was not that much, Paul trusts that Timothy can get it done by the command, by the hope, by the grace, by the mercy, by the peace that comes from Christ Jesus. What that means for us as we eavesdrop in on this letter from Paul to Timothy is that what's written here can be instructive also to us on how to keep our church grounded not on theology, not on morality, not on financial or prestigious success, but on Christ Jesus, our hope, on Christ Jesus, our Lord, on Christ Jesus our Savior. If you believe it, say amen. Let's pray. Father, we have introduced the topics that are here in First Timothy. We have familiarized ourselves with the author and the intended audience and the very special bond. And we've gotten to know something of the situation that was going on in the church in Ephesus, which occasioned this letter. And when we look at our church today, Lord... Maybe we don't see the same number of problems. Maybe it doesn't seem as severe. Or maybe it seems worse. Maybe it seems more numerous. In all cases, we pray, Lord, that we would do what Paul and Timothy endeavored to do, which is to bring the church back to Jesus and keep it grounded on Him, on Him alone. As we journey through this letter, we pray that we would pay keen attention to how Paul instructs Timothy in leading the church. That we would take it upon ourselves to read it as an instruction manual for leaders, a leadership manual for ministry. We pray, God, that we would be humble, that we would be careful, that we would be small, not that much, that you would use us and be mighty. Bless your church, God. Bring it back to Jesus, always to Jesus. Despite all the other stuff that could, that could be talked about, the theology, the morality, and the success of the church, Lord, we pray that everything would be attached to and sourced from and an expression of Jesus. That our church would remain founded on him and on his cross. Teach us this way, Lord, that you'd be honored in all we think and say and do. We pray all this for Christ's glory in his name. Amen.